in the middle of the Bible, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the ninth chapter. We are continuing in a series called Beyond Surviving. This is a way for us to talk about the impact of this virus that's been on our world and our lives and situationally has put us into a place not unlike uh, the, the exile that, that Israel experienced uh, when they went into Babylon and had to learn a new normal, how to worship God when everything around us has changed. And we've been seeking to figure out how do we grow, how do we intentionally move into the spaces where God's given us to be in a season that's very different than the season we were in before. And we said that that begins with the individual, it begins with the heart, it begins with the caring for our own souls, a focus on the, the person before God. And we can't lose that, our, our souls, uh, that, we are, that we walk with God, that we know God ourselves, that we are growing as individuals. And then that spills out into family life. We talked about intentional marriage, intentional parenting. And now we're going to begin to spill out into the world, which is also our calling. It begins inside, but it moves out. And it moves out in a particular way. And now, uniquely to us Christians, we have the opportunity to take responsibility for the callings that God has put on our lives. Our work, caring for our families, caring for our neighborhoods. And so we're going to look today at intentional responsibility and then next week, intentional neighbor. Today, intentional responsibility from Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. Not the most cheery passage But we're going to unpack it together this morning. Let's read these verses together. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy. And drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol, which is what, to which you are going. This is the word of the Lord. I was revisiting again this uh, famous short story by Leo Tol- Tolstoy, really one of my favorite short stories uh, ever written. Russian author, famous author Leo Tol- Tolstoy tells the story of two old men. And it's a story of their reflecting on their lives, and in, in particular, uh, the, the quintessential moment of their lives when they took a pilgrimage together. So these are Christian men set in Russia, and they wanted to take a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to, um, to visit Jerusalem, see all the sites where Christ um, had lived and died. And so they decided to go on this pilgrimage, and they, they save for years to, to be able to take these trips, to have this great experience and closeness to God. And the day comes, and they leave home, and they travel some way, and they come upon a town where they stay for one night. And they stay there the night, and they don't think much about it, but then they leave the next day, and, and then 
one of the men, whose name is Elisha, he, he realizes he needs to double back and get some water. He doesn't have, have enough water to go on this journey. And so he goes back to the town while Ephim, the other guy, rests, goes to sleep. And so Elisha goes back and he goes into this home to get some water. And he sees a lot of sick people in the room. And these sick people are so needy, they need water, they need food, they need care. And he has compassion on them. And he realizes that he can't go on that day. He has to stay there and take care of these people. And so he does. He stays there the night and he takes care of them. And then he realizes the next day they're not really any better off. And so he has to stay another day after that and another day and another day. And eventually he realizes that they need more than just his care. They need money. They need to, uh, an economy again. So he starts buying cattle for them out of the money that he was going to use for his Holy Land experience. And slowly over Months and months, he rebuilds this town, taking care of these people. Meanwhile, Ephim, who had fallen asleep on the path, wakes up and he wonders, did Elisha, did he come past? Did he miss where I was sleeping? Did he, did he uh, go to Jerusalem without me? And he wonders, well, I'll stay a little bit longer, but he stays a little longer. And then he goes to Jerusalem because he re recognizes, well, he must have gone on ahead of me. And this, this vision of Elisha in front of him stays in front of him for the whole trip. He's there for many months, maybe even years, and he keeps thinking that he sees Elisha, this vision of this man that he's supposed to be on this Holy Land experience with. And he keeps seeing visions of him, and every time Elisha is closer to the action, he's closer to the, to the sites where Christ died, and closer to the sites where he's where people say he was born, uh, raised again, and, and he keeps seeing this, and like Elisha is always in front of him. And so he keeps living this way, and eventually he runs out of money and comes back, and he finds that Elisha has already come back home because Elisha ran out of money a long time ago helping these people. As they reflect on their journeys, what Ephim has to wrestle with is who went on the pilgrimage? Who really went on the pilgrimage? It felt like Elisha was always ahead of him, always, um, those were just in his mind, of course, because Elisha was back serving people. But Elisha took the, the pilgrimage to mean, this is what God has given me responsibility over right now. This is what he's called me to. I can think, I can imagine an experience where, uh, where I was closer to him, where I was doing things, I was fulfilled in my life, but what, he, what eventually overcame him was the needs of those around him and seeing Christ in these people and taking responsibility for what was around him. I was thinking about that again this week as we find ourselves around sick people, around a sick nation, and that's true in multiple senses as we know. Sick with a virus, Sick with political problems, sick with personal family dysfunction, sick with sinfulness. And this is the place where God has called us to be. And an intentional responsibility, a, a Christian way of understanding that is what we're going to unpack today, is that this is what he's called us to, this moment with these people. And that having a life of faith means that we move out of what we perceive to be a future that we envision to be an amazing thing for us, and we move towards what God has called us to right now. 
we often think that we need something that is out there. An experience, a job, a family, a person. Something is out there that will unlock the tension that we have. The tension that's captured here for in this passage, which is kind of the tension between despair and desire. We have a a tension there because there's a feeling of futility in the world, and we're going to talk about that. A feeling that, that... you know, this, we're all going to die. And, and, you know, what are we really doing that's purposeful? And we have that despair on the one side, and then on the other side we have desire. Well, maybe I should just go enjoy my life. Maybe I should live my life to the fullest. And we move between these two things. But what Ecclesiastes teaches us here and echoes throughout the Scripture is that where that tension resolves is in the responsibility that God gives us in this season, in every season. That's what I want to talk about today. We are faithfully responsible in every season when we face reality on the one hand and find joy. Both of those things are important. Face reality and find joy. First, we need to face reality. This is what Elisha was doing as he looked at these people and he saw their despair. He faced that reality and changed based on what he saw there. Face reality. What does reality tell us? And this is the most depressing part, for sure, of the morning. First thing that we find in reality is death. Verse 5. The living know they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. That's cheery. On the face of it, this seems like a really depressing verse. Um, and again, it almost is a confusing verse to us as we look at it and we think, well, is, is Solomon who wrote this saying that there's no life after death? I mean, is he saying that, that all we have is, is right now and, then, and nothing more? Um, Solomon, of course, is not saying that there is no life after death. In other places of the book of Ecclesiastes, and of course, in accord with the rest of the scriptures, we believe in eternal life and that there is life after death, and that is actually what we're going towards. So he's not saying that there is no eternal life. What he's saying is that from the perspective of the living, this is how it works. From the perspective of the living, you die, and you don't really know what, what happens then. You don't, really, you don't really have a presence anymore under the sun, which we're going to talk about in just a minute. He's saying that the living are those who face the reality that they die. They face it. It's a certainty. Not only that, our, our death, but our memory. They have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. This is just the truth, the reality. We know that the memory of the individual things of our lives will not be remembered beyond a couple of generations. At best, if you lived an extraordinary, exceptional life, you might get a paragraph or two in the history books. But I doubt very much that George Washington would be satisfied with the, with the summary of his life that we know, right? He lived and he breathed and he had a life that was full. The memory will be forgotten. Everyone goes to what he calls here Sheol, verse 10. Whatever, whatever your hands finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge 
or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Sheol there is not, as many translations say, hell. This is the place of the dead. This is what we would say in English, the grave. When you go to the grave, you can't take it with you when you go to the grave, we say. What do we mean? We mean the place of the dead. It doesn't mean that we believe in a physical, like a, like a mythological place of the dead, like it's shown in Greek mythology. It means that there's this concept that we have that our life is no more, called the grave. We face that. Not only that, there's disappointments to face. Verse 6, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Disappointments. These are all the things that happen in our lives. Some good things like love, some hard things like hate and envy. And he's saying the sum of all those things, whether it's a good thing or it's a hard thing, the sum is that it fades. Whatever is working you up right now, whatever is preoccupying your thoughts, whatever, whether it's a good thing or it's a hard thing, whatever obsession that you have that you return to over and over again, that tension will fade with your life. That's what he's saying. So, that's a hard word. As Christians, we don't, we don't run from these things. We face these things. To put it in its most depressing terms, and then I promise we'll move more positive, Viewed from one perspective, Solomon's saying here, life is full of hard things that continue, good things that don't last, and in the end you die. Somebody make that into a song for K-Love. I think it would really fit well. Yeah, you don't hear that on Christian radio, do you? Ecclesiastes gets skipped over a lot on that station. Um... Viewed from one perspective, life is full of things, hard things that continue, good things that don't last, and in the end you die. These are certainties. Is that true? Yes, it's true. Is it, is it wisdom? Viewed from one perspective, it is wisdom. What is that perspective? You have to understand what the book of Ecclesiastes is doing. It's telling us about two perspectives on life. Life under the sun and life under heaven. And under the sun, certain things are true. And under heaven, other things are true. But yet, in a sense, they're both true. There's realities. What is life under the sun? Life under the sun is, as we experience it, life right now. The way we see the world. If we had no other eternal perspective, it would be life under the sun. And that's why the book of Ecclesiastes says you need to see the reality of that, but you don't need to hope in anything under the sun. Because if you hope in something under the sun, it will fade. Whatever it is, whether it's a good thing, a hard thing, or your very life, it won't continue. Life under heaven, we're going to talk about in just a moment. We're heading there next. But you need to see this. The reality of life under the sun has a certain kind of futility to it, doesn't it? That's why you can't hope in it. And so when we think about what we are ambitious about and what we want 
and our future vision of Jerusalem where we could visit and have this great experience of life, what are the things that we think about? We think about fame. We think about respect. We think about recognition for our work. We think about situational things like houses, incomes, a job that you're just so passionate about you can't wait to get out of bed every day, a child, the it's out there myth is so strong, life under the sun, it's over there, it's over there. But we have to face reality, which says that even if we do get some good things in life, those things will not last And therefore, they can't be hoped in. Face reality. We have to. I'm so glad that it doesn't end there. The Christian message is not just face reality, keep yourself from despair, because it all is terrible, and then you die. That's not the Christian message. It's a reality, but it's not the way that we see things. We see things under heaven because he also says you face reality but you find joy find joy what is where is joy found joy found is found in exactly the opposite of out there it's found right here with what kinds of things three things rewards relationships and responsibilities rewards relationships and responsibilities first the rewards Verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These are good things. These are things that God has given us to enjoy. There are rewards to being alive. Lots of good things. Food and drink are good things. Clothing is a good thing. Uh, the, the head anointed with oil may be a little harder for us to relate to, right? Kind of like that psalm that says, you know, like the, the oil on the beard of, of Aaron. That's how good your, your mercy is. You're like, ah, I don't know if that's that good to me to think about oil dripping off a beard. But you got to get into the context here, right? That was a cleanliness thing. That was a, um, that's, that's like treat yourself, you know, it's like spa. Um, you know, go to the spa, get oil anointed on your head. So think of a, a great shower, Self-care in our modern language, right? Food, drink, taking care of yourself, having clothing that is attractive, comfortable. These are the rewards that God has given us. So the, the first push against despair is to say, okay, life isn't just about the reality that there are disappointments and death. There are good things that he's given to us right now. I can imagine, of course, future good things. I can think about things in the future that would be good. But what do I have now? The rewards that God has given us. The first antidote to pursuing or walking away from what's out there is to go for searching for things that are good right here. There's also relationships. It says in verse 9, Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you. Vain there can mean vain or it can mean like it does throughout Ecclesiastes here, vaporous or short-lived. It's the word hebel. 
So he's saying you've got a short life. He's given you a wife or he's given you a husband. You find joy by looking at who God has, whom God has put around you. Who has he put near you that you love? He says that is your portion in life to which you toil under the sun to have people around you, friendships, spouses, kids. So in a sense, Christianity agrees with the maxim, uh, life is short, spend time with the people that you love. That's what he says right here. You have rewards, you have relationships, and thirdly, you have responsibilities. He says in verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. You find joy in what God has given you today to do. The callings, the responsibilities, the people that you care for, the job that you have currently, the, the uh, structures of your neighborhood, uh, the things that God has given you today, you find joy in those responsibilities. Because there is no work in the proverbial grave, there is no contribution there. It's interesting that in the face of, most people think that you find joy by walking away from responsibilities, not engaging with them. You would think that in the the conclusion of this, it would be, hey, life is terrible, you know, you have disappointments and death, and then, you know, so go and be merry. Where would you fit work in there? He says you should work. You should find responsibilities. Why? Because in those responsibilities, those become the things that make up life. They become actually the joys of life. David Brooks, New York Times colonist, he says this, a thick life is defined by commitments and obligations. A life well lived is a journey from open options to sweet compulsions. That's in his book, Second Mountain. Really great book. So he's saying there, a thick life. That Actually, he's using a term there from a philosopher, Charles Taylor, who talks about how our thick and thin lives, that modern life has made us thin. We have, we have thin relationships. We have thin commitments to one another. It used to be more that we were neighbors to each other. We lived in closer proximity. We had more shared life in church, more shared life in community. And in the modern world, we've pushed those things out. We've separated ourselves as much as we can, and we've become thin. And he's saying a thick life is what we're going for. A thick life is filled with commitments, not filled with freedoms. It's filled with commitments that become sweet compulsions. Over time, it's that thickness that brings the substance to our lives. When we're young, we have all of this openness and uh, open options before us. And then we start to make commitments in marriage and commitments to jobs and commitments to kids and commitments to legacy and all kinds of things, and they start weighing us down. And if we're not careful, we become resentful of those commitments. We think, why do I have all these commitments? I used to be free. But what we're saying here is when you move into whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, you actually are finding that freedom. It's the reason why The Lion King is the best Disney movie. It's the most Christian Disney movie. It is. Think about it. It's the exact opposite plot of every other Disney movie. 
What's the, the plot of every Disney movie except for that? It's unshackle yourself and learn to be free. Right? What's the Lion King? Come out of your freedom and learn to take responsibility. Think about that. A Disney movie where the point of it is not that you should learn uh, how to live without restriction. It's that you should stop learning to be so free and take some responsibility for the restrictions that you have. It's the exact opposite of everything else. So as you know, the story goes, we showed it to our kids like a year and a half ago for the first time. They loved it. And, you know, Simba is really terrible until the last 10 minutes of the movie. He's selfish, he's afraid, and he hides from his problems. You know, he, I just can't wait to be king. I want all the joys of being the king, but I don't want any of the responsibilities. Then he moves from that into fear. He leaves. Oh, you're going to be held responsible for your dad's death. I better run away. He goes out into the wilderness, finds a couple of animals that say, the key to life is Hakuna Matata. No worries for the rest of your days. And I'm amazed how often we sing that song to our kids, and our kids love it and stuff. But it's, it's the opposite message of the movie, isn't it? They leave behind Hakuna Matata. No worries for the rest of your days. And he comes back because Nala comes back to him, his childhood friend, and says, you can't live like you have all these freedoms. You've got to come back and take responsibility for your family. And so he does. And when he does, he actually brings his friends with him. You know, Timon and Pumbaa, they come. They realize that the obligation of friendship means more than the freedom of Hakuna Matata. And they come back. And they don't even know the context. They don't even, they're not even from there. But because of the obligation of friendship, they return. You see, that open freedom led to a sweet compulsion. It led towards taking care of the things that needed to be taken care of around them. What, they, what God had given them, so to speak, not actually in the movie. And that, I mean, it resonates so deeply with us because we are the kings and queens of God's creation. He has crowned us with glory and honor, Psalm 8. He's made us a little lower than the angels, crowned us with glory and honor. We are responsible for the world. So we don't abandon that responsibility, we take it. How relevant is that to our current situation when we're surrounded by sickness and surrounded by thin life? Maybe we have a thin life ourselves, but we can engage into the thick life of commitments and taking care of one another and the things that God has given whatever our hand finds to do, we do with our might. And in that, we actually have an antidote to the problem of despair on the one hand or to over over desire, which is the tension that he's talking about here. So there's two movements. There's face reality and there's find joy. Face reality and find joy. Life is full of disappointments and death, but joy says God puts you here in this season for a reason, and so you find joy in the things that he has given you. Now that's, that's fair enough as a, as a philosophy type message, you know, where you got to live some kind of way. It's better not to live with hedonism, and it's better not to live without, dis without despair. But what we need to see is that that's not the full Christian message. And as we close today, I want you to see 
how the gospel of Jesus Christ ties all this together into a, into a reason for that tension. It actually tells us the how in verse 7. Eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. That's the good news. God approves of you. That's a reason why you don't live your life completely for the moment and joy, and you don't avoid death. You have that power because God approves of you. He already approves of you. So all of our striving to live the right way, all of our searching for a Holy Land experience, it comes to fruition here because God already approves of us. It frees us up to live differently, to not live for just this moment. Think about that. If God approves of you, then do you have to live your life fearing death or disappointments? No, because we believe in eternal life. And if he approves of us, then we have that life forever. Why then do we not go on the other side and say, well, I'm just going to live up this moment. Suck the marrow out of life. Enjoy everything. Feel everything I can possibly feel because life is short. No? Why? Because you have eternity to experience all the good things that God has given you. You are free to spend a whole day praising God for one single flower because you have eternity with Him to enjoy every good thing that He has created. Do you see how when God approves of you, you're free. You're free to neither despair nor to seek desire in every corner of your life. People accuse Christianity of being a, a straitjacket, you know, something that locks people in to not experiencing life in its fullness. And the longer I'm a Christian, I think that it's the exact opposite. The straitjacket is found in this is all there is. Because if this is all there is, this moment, this vapor, as Ecclesiastes says, then you better get everything you can. You better find some kind of way to live that's different than what's described here. And many people do fall into that hedonism, or they fall into despair. And they say, well, if this is all there is, and I can't feel everything, then I might as well feel nothing. And numb yourself with addictions, and with anything that you can to, to escape the despair. What's more limiting than believing that after you die there is nothing? God approves of what we do already. That's the gospel. It isn't because of us. He approves of us, and then we live into this. And you notice that all the gifts that God gives told us in this passage, are also all the metaphors that the Scripture uses for salvation. Bread and wine. We're about to take it right now. To remember and believe what Christ has done for us in the cross. 
clothing, put on Christ. The refreshing of putting on Christ as the garment for our life. The white garments of revelation. He says, wear this white anointing. That is the picture of our salvation. We have been anointed with the oil of salvation. This refreshing comes not because we just notice the good things that God's given us, but we notice that He uses every single one of those things to point us to Christ and to His finished work for us. And so we receive these gifts as the ultimate refreshing. Everything you need is in Christ Jesus. And so there's an invitation here for us to come into that freedom, the freedom that Jesus gives us. To come into His freedom. There is a better way than despair and feeling like it's empty and nothing. Your life is not empty. Your life is not nothing. Even though it seems that way under the sun, it seems that way sometimes. And it's true from a certain angle. But that's not the only thing we have. We have life under heaven. And life under heaven, your life has value. And God has given us every good thing, most especially His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to go then to the other side and pull out every constant pleasure that we can think of. We can find joy in Him, in His way of life, knowing that it extends to eternity. He already approves of you. He already looks at you and your life and your responsibilities. If you are in Christ Jesus, His look towards you this morning is approval. Not waiting for you to come into the right mixture of all these things. He approves what you do. Let's pray.